Now this morning we're going to push out. We're going to push out in the boat. We're going to go into deep waters today. We started last week with our introduction to the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And last week, if you didn't have an opportunity, I would encourage you to go on our church website or go on to Sermon Audio. You can listen to last week's message as we did an introduction into this epistle and provided all the dates and all the historical and literal background that is associated with this. So today we're going to shove off. We're going to go into some deep waters. Unbeknownst to me this morning as we were in Sunday school, we went into some deep waters. And we were way over our head. But I'll tell you this. God was glorified. Because we saw the full magnitude, the glory of God. And I'll just throw a plug for Sunday school. But our our Sunday school, we we are doing... A thing called to knowing God, knowing God. How do we know God? How do we know the intimate knowledge of the person of God? And if you want to know God more, if you want to understand the principles of knowing God, I invite you to join us for Sunday school at 9.15. But today we're going to look at the ten blessings of the believer. The ten blessings of the believer. Now, We're going to look at three of them today. So this could be called the Ten Blessings of the Believer, Part 1. And you could naturally assume there's going to be a Part 2 and 3, and who knows, maybe a Part 4. But today I want to take you into Ephesians, and I want to take a look at three really critical verses in Ephesians. And they're verses 3, 4, and 5. 3, 4, and 5. Now, I want to put a caveat on this. These three verses, along with the rest of Ephesians chapter 1, is some really profound and deep biblical truth, right? And there's only so much you can do in 45 minutes. If, perchance, you didn't get everything, all you have to do is go to a website and replay the message. And our messages are always out there by about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the latest. So if you miss something, just go back and replay it, and you'll be able to hear it. What do we know from last week? Well, Paul writes the church in Ephesus to tell them the theme of Ephesus, the immeasurable riches in Christ. The immeasurable riches in Christ, right? And he calls them to live in a manner that is worthy of those riches. Right? He doesn't call them to live in a manner that's partially worthy. He calls them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You even heard it as we read our scripture reading in Colossians 1. That we are to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. May I throw out something to you early on? A lot of times we tend to live our Christian life thinking, how does God view this? How does God view this particular issue in my life? How does God view my devotion? But may I add something? You should live your life in view of who God is, who Christ is, and what He has accomplished for you. If you look at it that way, what you will see is, is that what God has done and what Christ has secured on the cross is invaluable. 
And what it should do is it should raise your awareness and your knowledge of God so that you're living in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's very popular for people to ask me questions and say, Pastor, is this a sin? And boy, my antennas go up as soon as I hear that. They go up because what immediately comes into my mind is, how close can I get to sinning without crossing the line? I think from now on my response is going to be, forget that. What's your heart toward Christ? What's your heart toward Christ? Does your, does your heart justify hardness? Does, does your heart justify unkindness? Does your heart justify laziness and slothfulness to God? Does your heart justify indifference? Does your heart justify drunkenness? Does your heart justify all manner of wickedness? That's the profound question. The question is not whether this is a sin or that is a sin. The question is, where is your heart toward God? And the challenge that goes out to all of us today is exactly that. Do we live our life in response to the immeasurable riches that are the believers in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Ask yourself today that as we study the Word of God. Ask yourself today if there is sin and unrepentance in your life. Ask yourself, is this what God commands of me? Is this how I am to live in the light of Christ's forgiveness and Christ's richness? The Apostle Paul is writing the church in Ephesus, which lived in a wicked, wicked, wicked city. And as he does in other epistles, he's writing them to encourage them so that they know of their position in Christ. If we know our position in Christ, then we can live in a manner worthy of that. And let me add, if we don't, then we willfully sin. Then we willfully sin. So Paul writes them. And as we embark on verses, well, it's 3 to 14 is one comprehensive thought. But we see several amazing truths. Several amazing truths. And in these first, first 14 verses, number one, we see, we see the working of the triune God. We see the working of the triune God. In verses 3 to 6, we see the work of God the Father. In verses 7 to 12, we see the working of Jesus Christ the Son. And in verses 13 through 14, we see the glorious working of the Holy Spirit. The glorious triune God. How each person of the triune deity all come together for the application. And by the way, here's an interesting note. I mentioned this in Sunday school because they robbed it from this morning's meeting. But here's an interesting note. In Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 1, the pronoun, he, his, him, is used 37 times. And it is applied equally to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. No distinction between them. 
So right away, Paul sets out, and he sets out defining the triune God, where the triune God's position is for those in Christ. The other things that we're going to see here is we're going to see ten blessings for the believers. Ten blessings for the believers. And these also are found in verses 1 through 14. Today we're going to look at three of them that are found in verses 3 to 5. But what are the ten blessings? I'll just do this in summary format. The ten blessing is this. Beginning in verse 3, God bless the believer in Christ. In verse 4, God chose the believer in Christ. In verse 5, God predestined the believer. In verse 6, God's grace is given to the believer. In verse 7, in Christ the believer is redeemed. Verses 8 through 10, in Christ the believer knows the mystery of God's will. Verse 11, in Christ the believer has received an inheritance. Verse 12, in Christ the believer has hope. Verse 13, the Holy Spirit seals the believer. And verse 14, the Holy Spirit assures the believer. Now, if you did not get all of that, just see me after the service. I'll lay it out. Or if you want to do it at home, like I said, you can listen to the message on home. Now, the question that you have to ask yourself, this is the question, right? This is where application comes in. The question you have to ask yourself is, why is this so important? Why is all these theological truths so important? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you must, you must understand your position in Christ. You must understand your position in Christ. These believers were living in an atmosphere of outward hostility, antagonism, in a pagan culture, and these believers needed to know that they're not being defrauded, they're not being robbed of anything. And may I add something? Let me add this. We live in a culture that has abundance. We live in a culture that has so much material prosperity, it's not funny anymore. And there are many out there that feel that if I'm in Jesus Christ, I'm being robbed of something. Boy, the world has everything. The world has all the toys, all the gizmos. Look at the people in the world. They're so happy. They're so living it up. Not a care in the world. But you as a believer need to understand your position in Christ. And you have to understand that the most destitute believer in the world has much more than the richest, richest person in the world. And if you understand your position in Christ, it will change your relationship with Jesus Christ. It will change it. Paul begins by telling this church at Ephesus of the immeasurable riches of it, their blessings in Jesus Christ. And that in knowing and understanding these truths, they can live their lives in a manner worthy in a matter worthy of those riches. Paul intends that believers would know, as he says in Ephesians 3.18, that believers would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, 
and his inheritance in the saints. In the saints. Man, that's some serious stuff. Riches. He uses that word so many times throughout this epistle. We need to understand these truths. We do. We truly need to come to that place. Listen, the world screams at us all day long with all different voices, and it obscures this fundamental truth. It obscures it. You know, I hasten to say, but I think if I would ask many, what is your position in Christ, that many would have a hard time articulating that. Who am I in Christ? What has Christ provided to me? This is fundamental truth. We have to hold to this. Listen, when I was a young child, and I knew if I got picked on on the block, I knew that I could run back to my house and my apartment where I grew up. And I knew I could call on my dad. And I could say, Dad, these guys are picking on me. Dad, these... And I know, I know that my dad would run out and defend me. Now, what was that knowledge? That knowledge was the fact that I knew who my dad was. And I ran to him, and I knew he would be a defender for me. And I knew he would guard me against those things that came in and threatened me. And I knew that my dad was loving and that he was caring and that anything he could give me that was good for me, he would do so. Do you know that about Christ? When you go through a trial or a tribulation, do you know of the riches that are yours in Jesus Christ? Do you know positionally where you stand? It is far more detailed then I'm not going to hell. Can we get that right? It is far more detailed than that. We need to know, because if we know who we are in Christ, then we know when we run to Christ, that He'll answer. That we are His children. Look with me in Ephesians 1.3. And may I add one other note to that? Here's my goal in my heart as we study this epistle, and it's this, that Christ would become preeminent in our life. I want to share this with you. I want you, I want you, maybe right now you'll do it, maybe after church you do it. I want you to contemplate this. And I want you to pray and say, Lord, I want you to be preeminent in my life. I want you to be preeminent in my speech. I want you to be preeminent in my prayer life. I want you to be preeminent in my professional life. Lord, I want you to be preeminent in my service for Christ. Lord, I want you to be preeminent in my thoughts. I want you to be preeminent in my contemplation. I want you to be preeminent in my church. Lord, that all I am would scream, would scream Jesus Christ. And that's the challenge I have for us. 
today. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It reads as follows. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now here is the first of ten blessings, right? God blesses the believer in Christ. This is number one. God blesses the believer in Christ. And here in verse 1, God uses the term, God bless. We, we've discussed this. We've discussed this on church. We've discussed this on Tuesday night Bible study. Hopefully you know what that means. When the Bible New Testament says bless, what does it mean? It means that the favor of God is upon you. The favor of God. Who does not want the favor of God in their life? Man, I want more favor of God. I'm going to be honest with you. The favor of God. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. And everybody says, well, what does that mean? That means be happy, but that's a short definition. You're happy because the favor of God is upon you. Conversely, you're going to be sad if the favor of God is not upon you. Paul begins this greeting. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he adds, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. As to this blessing, God blesses the believer with everything for life and for godliness. I hope that sounds familiar to some of you from Tuesday night when we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter writes, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Peter reiterates basically what Paul states here, that Christ has given us everything everything to life and godliness life on this earth and all things pertaining to godliness you know it's an interesting thing i don't have to go shopping for more in colossians chapter 2 verse 10 you don't have to turn there but the apostle paul says this he's talking about the position in Christ, he talks about in verse 8, don't let anybody defraud you with vain philosophy, right? He says, because you lack nothing, and in verse 10 he says, and in Him, in Christ, you are complete. What do you mean, Pastor? Do I have to go chase some spiritual experience? Do I have to have some mystical spiritual experience to understand that God is with me, that Christ is with me? No. If you have come to the place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. And he adds, Paul adds in verse 3, in the heavenlies. What are the heavenlies? It's the realm of God. It's the abode of God, the dwelling place of God. He has given us everything. Everything we need for this life is found in Christ. All wisdom found in Christ. All riches found in Christ. 
All things pertaining to godliness. What does that mean? That means my sanctification. What's sanctification? That I'm being set apart unto God. That God is conforming me daily and daily into the image of the Son. Well, who's given me that? Well, God has done it in Christ. Believers are one with Christ. And by the way, this is an important note, and I want you to note this. And I'll say it again. Believers are one in Christ. What does that mean? This is speaking of the union of the believer with Christ. And this is not talking about some form of of mystical, it's not talking about a water baptism. Matter of fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28, you may want to turn there because I want you to see this because this will explain what it means to be in Christ because this is a term that Paul uses all through his epistles, all through his epistles. And we talk about it, right? We talk about that if we are in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. Paul writing to the church at Galatia says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Notice, go back to Ephesians chapter 3. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Paul said in Galatians, you were baptized. And he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism. That upon salvation, the believer is placed in Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual baptism. You're placed in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? We are placed in Christ and we are clothed in Christ. Christ's righteousness is now our righteousness. Now, I know that's something hard to fathom, but it is true. The believer is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I probably use this verse more than any other verse, and I don't know, I think, if it's not the most important verse in the Bible. I think it is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And that is 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I personally believe that you should memorize this verse. Because when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, as we sang before the throne of God, the imagery being produced there is 2 Corinthians 5.21. What does 2 Corinthians 5.21 say? He made him who knew no sin 
to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. We started off talking that Paul is talking about the immeasurable riches in Christ. And let me ask a question. What could be worth more than being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? That when God looks at us, when God looks at the believer... God does not see all of their sin. He does not see all their shortfall. He does not see all of their unrighteousness. What does God see? He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, praise God. We don't have that in the world, right? We talk about people like this. Oh, there goes Bob. Bob's a former drug addict that came to Christ. Oh, there goes Sally. She's a former alcoholic that came to Christ. This one was a mobster. This one was a thief. Oh, that person did time here. That person did time there. What does God see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. And because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Paul can tell us that believers are in Christ. You see in Christ all over the New Testament. That's what you need to see. That the believer is wrapped, that the believer is baptized, that the believer is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The believer is united by faith. And because of that, the believer is one with Christ. The truth is that as believers, we are one with Christ. Christ's life, I said this at the Stand Firm Conference, Christ's life is our life. Christ's power is our power. Christ's victory is our victory. Christ's truth is our truth. Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. Christ's death is our death. And Christ's resurrection Praise God, His resurrection from the dead is the believer's resurrection from the dead. Believers, put on Christ. Do you put on Christ? When you go to work, do you put on Christ? On the Lord's day, do you put on Christ? When you go to school, do you put on Christ? Is Christ preeminent in you? Is your life a testimony to the immeasurable riches that are found in Jesus Christ? This is what salvation does. This is true redeeming, redemption. As a result, all believers are one in Christ. That is why, Paul says, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And this is the first of these ten blessings that we see here in Ephesians verses 3 through 14. And it is, notice that Paul is jumping out and he is telling them this at the beginning. You know, he's not saying, poor little babies, you're suffering for the faith. Oh, just keep up there, hang, hang in there. Notice he's not throwing out, oh, you can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. By the way, that's always taken out of context. Contextually in Philippians, it's true. What is the first thing? You would think if people were suffering, if people were struggling with the faith, 
there be another means. But Paul sets out immediately to establish their position because he knows through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, he knows if they come to the place of understanding their position in Christ, it is going to cause them to stand and to hold for the gospel. So the first thing we see is God bless the believer in Christ. Here's the second the second truth and blessing. God chose the believer in Christ. Look at verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In verse 3, we read that God has blessed the believer in Christ. He has demonstrated His favor toward the believer in Christ. He did so by pouring out every spiritual blessing in Christ. But what are some of those blessings? Well, we see God chose the believer in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that word chose means literally to elect. That's what it means. It means to elect, to select. And that selection is a unilateral selection. It's a deliberate, by the way, selection. That's what that means. That God deliberately elected. God deliberately chose. And this selection or election by God is that God would have a people after His own heart And these people would be holy, which means set apart unto God, and that they would be blameless, and that means without blemish. So what was God doing? God was choosing a people for Himself that would be set apart to Him, and they would be without fault. They would be blameless people. They would be a sanctified people who, listen, listen, listen to this. They would be a sanctified people who desire God. There's a crazy thought, right? That the people of God would actually desire God? That they would have a deep yearning and a burning inside of their soul for the Lord? What's happened to the desire of God within the church? All across this nation, somebody's got to help me with this. All these people profess, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but nobody desires God. And if you tell them to do two things or three things with the church in a week, they're like exhausted and exasperated. Oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to miss my favorite show. Come on now. Come on now. The people who know God love God. Is that not a true statement? And it's not this marginalized love. Can I add that? It's not this marginalized, like, I love Jesus. You know, he's my best bud. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the people. Oh, man, this is Sunday school all over again. The people who know God have a great passion for God. They have a great energy for God. They have great thoughts for God. Can you honestly tell me and say, I had enough of Christ for today? 
I could hear Mike Gray going, preach it, pastor. God, through salvation, listen, God, through salvation, decreed, He declared, He spoke. How did God create the world? He spoke it. God, through salvation, declared, there will be a people for me. There will be a people for me. And this election... We see right here in Ephesians chapter 1. This election is about those people. Listen, in the Old Testament, we see that God chose Israel. And right, He tells them, I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous among the people. And I didn't choose you because you were the best of the people. I just chose you. Basically, what God was saying, I chose you because I chose you. End the story. Don't ask me any more questions. Right? But he tells us, what did he choose those people for? That through Israel, the glory of God would be revealed through the earth. And it's true. Because the ultimate glory of God, Jesus Christ, where did he come from? He came from Israel. And he becomes the great unifier, pulling in the Jew and the Gentile into one body in Christ. Here we see in verse 4 that these sanctified people who desire God, who love and worship Him, those whom the Lord has chosen, this election, those whom the Lord hath chosen, there are four key principles about these people. Number one, they're to be a peculiar people. What does peculiar mean? It means a unique people. Not a weird people. A unique people. 1 Peter 2.9 The Lord writes to the Jews in dispersion. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Let me ask you this question. Do you truly believe that you, you are part of that unique people? Do you believe that you are, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that we as a church are, as believers in Jesus Christ, a people for God's own possession? If we believe that, we should act like that. Right? Amen. So they are to be a peculiar people. Number two, they are to be a people who perform righteous works. Ephesians 2.10 uh, The Apostle Paul, after his great proclamation that by grace ye are saved through faith, he goes on to declare this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God had foreordained that we should walk in them. Every Christian is called to serve. Every Christian is called to serve Christ. 
I hear this so many times where some people that are professed believers say, well, I believe God has given me the following spiritual gifts. And I'll say, where do you go to church? Well, I don't go to church anymore. I just operate. Well, you're a liar then. Because you know what the purpose of spiritual gifts are? They're designed to be used in the church and through the church. God has equipped every believer with at least one spiritual gift. And that gift is to be employed in the body of the church. We are called for good works which God has ordained. The third principle. This unique, peculiar people were to be a holy people. What does that mean? That means that our lives are to be set apart unto God. That our lives are consecrated to God. That means we willfully and joyfully will give up liberties so that Christ may be glorified, Christ may be honored, and the gospel would advance. We're set apart to God. That means we don't go running into all the nasty movies that are out there. That means we don't go squandering our time with all of the garbage that's out there. That means we don't trade the glory of Christ for the things of the world. We don't trade them. Matthew 5, 16, our Lord Jesus Christ made this statement. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to glorify God. We're a holy people, a sanctified people. And lastly, the fourth principle here of God's elect is that God will have a people who worship Him in truth. John 4.23, you probably know this. It says that God is spirit and those that worship Him worship Him in spirit and in truth. John Calvin wrote these words, the very time when election took place proves it to be free. What he's talking about, free from choice for what could, uh, for what could we have deserved or what merit did we possess before the world was made? In other words, what merit was there in us before the world was made? God chose an eternity past. And he did it according to his kind intention and according to his goodwill. Believers didn't exist. So there was nothing to foresee. God made a gracious choice and Paul makes it clear here in verse 4 he says God's choosing is that people would be holy and blameless before him this is a humbling truth a humbling truth and how glorious to know that your salvation was bestowed upon you as an unmerited gift. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. What righteousness and sin-stained bodies and sin-stained corruption 
could we bring to a holy God? There's nothing. God knew. God responded. God did. And God saved. And God made us new creations in Jesus Christ. Here's the third principle found in verse 5. God predestined the believer. Paul writes, He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. God had determined before the foundation of the world that He would choose for Himself. He would predetermine by Him to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. We become the children of God. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 1.12? For as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe on His name. For as many as believed Him. That word predestines, another important word. It means to predetermine or to foreordain. This again is the decree of God. We see the same truth of Paul in the epistle to the Romans in Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many, uh, many nations, uh, many brethren. What does it mean to be conformed into the image of his Son? What does that mean? That is the whole context of that verse. To be conformed into the image of the Son is to be blameless and holy before God. How does that happen? Only through the new birth. Only through the new birth can that happen. Only if one becomes saved in Christ Jesus. God predetermined that believers in Jesus Christ would be adopted. Now here's the key thing. Believers in Christ would be adopted. And that word refers to legal adoption. They would be adopted into the family of God. You know, in ancient times, when somebody would be adopted, right, there would be a legal court proceeding and there would be papers that would be drawn up. But when the adoption was finalized, the papers would be destroyed. You know why? Because now you are legally his son. It didn't matter if you were biological or not. It has been declared you are his son. Let me tell you, for every believer that is adopted into the family of God, there's no adoption papers. Why? Because I am as much a son of God as Jesus Christ himself. The Bible tells us that I'm a joint heir with Christ. What did I do to earn some of Christ's inheritance? I didn't do anything. But we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Oh, we talk about the immeasurable riches of blessings found in Christ. Right there is one of them. I'm a joint heir with Christ. And even here we see, regarding this predestination, three additional principles. The scriptures tell us that God's predestination is done. Number one, it's done in love. Verse four. So there isn't this rot, this this mean, indiscriminate God. Oh, I just 
How was it, how was it done? It was done in love. In God's perfect love. The second one is based on the good pleasure of his will. We see this in verse 3. We see this in verse 9. We see this in verse 11. And what was the purpose of all of this? The purpose of all of this was that God would be glorified. Verse 14. All this is done in God's perfect will and choice. However, it does not alleviate man of their responsibility. It does not alleviate man of his responsibility. Now, I know that for some this is a complicated truth to reconcile. It is essential to realize that most, most people tend to adopt one side of the spectrum or the other. Some people are God's sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. Other people are free will, free will, free will. But what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches both. That is an undeniable truth. An undeniable truth. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility run side by side. And Charles Spurgeon once quoted, he said, God's sovereignty and man's responsibilities are like railroad tracks that you see going on into the distance. As you stand there, the rails are far apart. But the further you look down, it appears that they begin to converge. And what Charles Spurgeon said is, they do indeed converge in the providence and in the wisdom of God. So here we see these glorious, glorious truths. And this is a glorious truth. It's so rich in wisdom. And, and we talked about this in Sunday school. I don't want to beat that drum. But we talked about how it is so vast. And you know, we like things wrapped up in a box with a pretty bow on us. And we open it up and we go, oh, there is the truth. But there are still mysteries to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. The Bible has revealed to us what God has chosen to reveal to us. But it does not sum up the mind or the nature of God. And in the scripture we see these tensions that run side by side. And this is one of those tensions, right? God's divine sovereignty and His free will and how they interact. No one, no one will ever say on that great day, I'm not here because I was not chosen. No one will stand before the justice of God on that great judgment day and go, well, God, it's your fault. You don't elect me unto salvation. Herein lies the mystery. But let me, let me add this. Is it not a glorious truth? Ephesians 1.4 is it not a glorious truth that we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world? Is it not a glorious truth that God would have such compassion and such mercy? Take, I'm going to say it for me, but you think about it for you. For me, that God would take a dirtbag like me 
A sinner like me? A wretch like me? And save me in love and choose me and predestine me to become adopted as a son of God? And that's just me. Think about it for you. Think about what God did in your life. To me, and we're going to see more and more as we continue to go through Ephesians chapter 1, these truths are the very riches themselves. See, if we're able to come to reconcile these truths as being true because God said it, God said it and it's true. And I'll tell you one of the best things you could do if you want to go home, read Ephesians chapter 1. Don't look at any commentaries. Just read Ephesians chapter 1. Read it in its literal context. And you will find that these riches are indeed true. And so I started out this message saying, so what's the significance? What's the importance? The importance is this. If these things are true, I should say not if, since. Since these things are true, how should I live my life? How should I live my life? Is Christ preeminent in every area of my life? And if not, why? Why? That's a question we all individually have to tackle and we all individually need to address. Next week we'll be looking at Verses 6 through 9, 6 through 9 of Ephesians chapter 1. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.